One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. I'd like to make a Hollywood crime report. Okay. We don't have any uh, celebrity. Hollywood crime stories, but I do have a Hollywood-based crime report that happened to me last night at 3 in the morning. It was mm-hmm. harrowing. I went to the McDonald's drive through because I was starving and craving some French fries, and I ordered the French fries. I ordered a sausage McMuffin for my drunk boyfriend, and I ordered some chicken McNuggets against my better judgment. I swore I would never eat chicken McNuggets again. But I was desperate and horny for fast food. When I got home with the contents, I opened the contents of my of my purchase. The fries had no fucking salt on them. And they weren't even hot or crisp or good. Well. And they forgot to put the sweet and sour sauce in my bag. What a horror show. It's like the Black Dahlia. I felt... <laughs> It honestly, I mean, I feel like 50 years from now, they're going to be like, and you can still hear Rachel Fisher's moans yeah. coming from her On the apartment. Hollywood, like, uh, crime scene uh, bus tour. Right. <laughs> That's what they're going to be talking about, is this crime that occurred last night. I don't want to out the work, the, it's not, I don't want to blame the, the workers of McDonald's. Right. They work very hard. This isn't about that. I don't want to shame the workers. They should have hired more people, obviously, on that shift. They work very hard there. They should be getting paid way more than they're getting paid there. So this wasn't anyone's... I'm not blaming anyone. This wasn't no. anyone's fault. This was just a very tragic, unfortunate situation. When I'm hungry and I'm getting food that late and it's fucked up, it is, it's like... It's tragedy. It's. I'm so infuriated. Because I didn't have any right. food to eat at the house. Right. I so. mean, that's why you went to McDonald's in the first place. You're already in a weakened state. <laughs> Like, you don't need to have it any worse. And my like, boyfriend was drunk. He needed something to soak up the alcohol. Right. So I just, like, tossed him the bag. I said, you finish it. I can't even look at it Ugh. right now. And then my cat ate a McNugget. It was just... Oh. <laughs> this is like a... This is a tragic Hollywood tale. <laughs> it was actually really sad. My cat... Watching my, my child, my cat, right. eat a McNugget. Ugh. Bad mom. <laughs> so anyway, thank you guys. Um, in, in lieu of flowers, please just donate to our Patreon. <laughs> thank you. That's it. Anyways, okay. so yeah. today uh, we're going to be delving into the story of Francis Farmer. Yes. Uh, so if you don't know, Francis Farmer was an actress in the 30s, but she's probably more well known at this point for her really tragic uh, life story, which includes being committed to a mental institution, which I have to just say here was something that I was obsessed with as a kid. Mental institution? Yeah, because I saw a movie. Obviously, we all know by now that I had literally no supervision as a child. No. And I watched a movie called The Snake Pit with Olivia de Havilland, and it's about being in a hell hole of a mental institution. And back in those days, uh, yeah. mental institutions. I mean, that must have been from the 40s, that movie. They were horror uh, shows. Yeah. Anyways, I kind of always was fascinated by that especially being um, committed, like... The whole <laughs> it act seemed, of being committed? Yeah, it seemed like something that could happen to anyone to right. me when I was a kid. Where most people probably know her from was a movie starring um, Jessica Lange, which was from, I think, 1982. 81. Or 81, okay. Sorry, bitch. <laughs> I'm very good. I'm like, very much a savant with dates. It's weird. 
that was sort of like how she kind of had a reemergence of fame a few things before that. So I'm going to get to that, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, but first I'm going to kind of go through the whole deal of how she got there. So what's really, I found really interesting about her and I feel like why a lot of people might be kind of into her is that she was really a fucking rebel before it was like really socially acceptable for a woman to kind of yeah. be outspoken and kind of a badass. I did not know this about her. I was just watching the 1981 movie with uh -huh. Jessica Okay, Lane. stop rubbing it in. <laughs> you know what? I'm sorry, I'm a cunt. Um, Hollywood crime cunt. In the movie, she uh, she's portrayed as... Yeah, right. She's very... Whatever. You, it's your story. You okay. can tell the story. I'm sorry. I just got really excited. She just wanted about, to say that date again. I got really excited about this part because it was like a fact about Frances Farmer that I didn't know. And I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. Yeah. She's very interesting. So basically she was a rebel before it was fashion, uh, fashionable. This is a quote from uh, Rita Rose who wrote about her um, from a 1983 article. 1983. And she said, Frances was a rebel when it wasn't fashionable. She was a free-thinking woman of the 30s and 40s whose outspoken nature, shocking language, and antisocial behavior landed her in jails and mental institutions. Yep, that's pretty much true. <laughs> So anyways, Frances was born in 1913. Uh, she was born in Seattle and, and was pretty much raised there. Um, I think she had like a little stint in California, but was pretty much in Seattle. And in 1931, she was in high school. And this is kind of where she first made her rebellious splash. She won a writing contest sponsored by Scholastic Magazine for her essay, God Dies. <laughs> Just like pretty crazy for that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, now it's like pretty annoying atheism is very blatant and all over the internet and whatever it's, but for this girl uh, from yeah for know. this time basically she kind of came upon this because she started reading Nietzsche which is like, uh, also another, I know it's just but it's I'm, also typical like, but it wasn't played out in it wasn't played out then right basically the theme of the essay was basically like how can you think there's a god when the world is um a flaming bag of dog shit <laughs> which it's like some things never change right my uh she kind of did an interview at some point after that i think it was from 1937 where she said which i love this line she said it was pretty sad because she got a lot of things like people were saying you're gonna go to hell uh you're gonna rot in hell she's just a teenager right she's a point. teenager that at this point um and in this interview in 1937 so after she was famous she said it was pretty sad because the first time for the first time, I find out how stupid people could be. <laughs> That's like, girl, that is like literally the best lesson every one of us gets in our lifetime. Right. I feel like we're like, okay, this is a turning point. Now I know I can adjust my ways. <laughs> After high school, she went to the University of Washington um, and that's kind of where she started doing theater and fell in love with acting and the whole shebang. In 1935, she won a subscription contest for selling like subscriptions to a leftist newspaper called the voice of action so she kind of had a little bit of a she was political social, yeah she was like slightly political the first prize for this the, the the prize that she won was a trip to the soviet union which she accepted despite the objections of her mother and it was basically so she could i guess on the way to soviet union she would be stopping in new york city and that was kind of what she wanted because she couldn't afford a train ticket to go to New York and pursue acting. So this was her way to kind of get to New York, to New York. Very roundabout right. way. Going to all get, the way to Russia. All the way to there, yeah. Uh, so she got back uh, to New York and she started uh, trying to be an actress in the theater. She wanted to be a theater actress. But of course, um, Hollywood came a knocking because she was very attractive, 
you know, with the classically, you know, movie star looks. And Paramount Pictures, the talent scout, his name was Oscar Serlin, arranged a screen test for her after seeing her in something. Um, and they offered her a seven-year contract. So on her 22nd birthday, she moved out to Hollywood, um, and she did the whole studio shebang, you know, becoming like a contract player, basically. She was even uh, hooked up with another actor at the time. His name is Leif Erickson, which I I probably will call him Leif Garrett at some point. I was just going to say, it sounds <laughs> I literally like, can't not do it. It sounds like Leif Garrett. Le- Leif Garrett. Okay, Leif. Yeah, I keep saying Leif, but it's Leif, right? Yeah, okay. he's Leif Garrett. Leif Garrett. But Leif Erickson or Leif? I have no idea. Who cares? No one knows who he is. Anyways, but obviously with her rebellious nature, like from the start, she kind of always was rejecting this Hollywood star treatment and like having to get in line and create an image and all that kind of stuff just never really sat well with her. She had a few like early successes. Um, her one, I think it might have been her first two movies. But she was in a movie with uh, Bing Crosby called Rhythm on the Range, which I don't know what it is, but it sounds like a cowboy sing along, <laughs> something or other. And then her um, big sort of breakout movie was called Come and Get It. Hot. <laughs> These titles are like, yeah, it's like it sounds like some kind of crazy porn. Now that movie was originally directed by Howard Hawks, which was a huge film director at the time. Um, and he called her the greatest actress he had ever worked with. Uh, he at some point got fired during that film and was replaced by William Wyler, which is another major film director at the time. And Frances was rebellious and she was a piece of shit bitch to William Wyler because she was uh, loyal to Howard Hawks. And he said about her, the nicest thing I can say about Frances Farmer is that she is unbearable, which I kind Whoa. of love like being a woman where you have such dramatic reactions from men. Like you should always want to have an extreme reaction from people, right? right? And Cecil B. DeMille also said that she was the screen's outstanding find of 1936. So she was a good actress. She yes. wasn't like just a pretty face. But because of that, it made it even more irritating that she was being treated kind of like a fluff Hollywood star who actually didn't have talent. She had always been fascinated with something called the group theater. Fuck. I accidentally missed it somewhere. I didn't type it, but I think that's the name of it. It was kind of like a leftist theater group. Um, And it's uh, 1937. She left Hollywood, which broke her contract, basically, uh, to work with that theater company who was... um, Oh, yeah, it is the group theater. And at the time, um, the director for that theater was Clifford Odets. And she got a leading role in his play that he was directing called The Golden Boy, which was a huge hit. And obviously, uh, Francis and Clifford, which is like a horrible name. <laughs> Clifford? <laughs> yeah, Clifford. I just think of the big yeah, red dog. It doesn't sound hot, but she had, a, she had an affair. So they started having an affair. Uh, he was married to an actress named Louise Rainier at the time, who was a big star. But obviously, at some point, as men are, as men are wont to do, he dumped her um he actually dumped her by a telegram a two-line telegram which is, is like so whack dump it's like the dump by text of the 1930s right right <laughs> i'm breaking up with you stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> um uh and then to make matters like to put like salt on the wound uh they hired another actress to take over her part in the play and it was an actress that basically funded the play so she kind of got the part for money, and that actually irritated Frances even more because she's like, "Hey, you guys are socialist, right? You're taking the payoff for the, the the wealthy capitalist money to do your whatever." Right. So she kind of had a consistent uh, stance on things, I guess, but she was pos- probably also pissed. <laughs> so you right. know, you take it whichever way you want. And so after the breakup with Odette's, that really did devastate her, though. 
And that's kind of where things started to unravel. She went back to Hollywood and uh, her alcoholism kind of grew. And she also um, was taking Benzedrine, which is a prescription amphetamine that the studio gave her to regulate her weight. So it was like a common kind of diet pill right. at the time. Her marriage to Leif ended in 1942. She's, there's like a few funny stories that started showing that she was having this, her erratic behavior kind of really started escalating at this point. Um, one story I really love is that, I guess at the time, like actors would try to go and get um, endorsement deals. Yeah. And they would meet with the advertisers and have to schmooze them and stuff like that. And obviously, based on what I've told you, you can imagine that Francis was not really not up for that kind it. of stuff. So at one point, she had a meeting and, and someone asked her, what's Tyrone Power like? <laughs> like come some kind of smoothie bullshit question, right. right? And she said, I do not know Tyrone Power. I fucked him a lot, but I don't know him. <laughs> and then she said, gentlemen, this meeting is over, which I love. I kind of am obsessed with uh, Francis Farmer. <laughs> yeah, and then at, at the end of it too, she said, and I don't care to sell your goddamn orange juice, <laughs> which I kind of love. And then a side note about the amphetamine use, it, it wasn't until the 1970s that um, it was sort of known that benzedrine or amphetamines in general had really unpredictable side effects. So if you took them a lot, it could really produce symptoms that were really similar to schizophrenia. Which brings us to <laughs> even more erratic behavior. October 19th, 1942, sorry, I scrolled too far. Farmer was stopped by the Santa Monica police for driving um, without a license. I guess she wasn't stopped for that, but she ended up not having her license. And the reason she was pulled over was because she had her um, headlights on, on, on bright. And at the time it was a wartime blackout zone on the West Coast, so you weren't allowed to have headlights. Do that, yeah. Uh, or brights. Or brights. I think that's so. I mean, yeah, there were a lot well, of whatever, really stupid right. reactions to the war <laughs> going on, but that that seems like such a dangerous, right? Yeah, because random thing. Uh, and the reports are that she was so. Not only did she not have a driver's license, but she ended up being verbally abusive to the police, and they also suspected that she was drunk, which right. was probably true. Uh, and she ended up having to go to jail overnight and, um, she was, you know, given a fine, which is, I think it was $500 and a 180 day suspended sentence. Um, <clears throat> she paid some of the fine immediately and then was set on probation and had to pay the other part of the fine at some point. She also was supposed to meet with a probation officer, but I mean, basically she didn't do any of that fucking shit. So in January of 1943, so like a few months later, a bench warrant was issued for her arrest because, because of those things. Right. Around the same time, she dislocated the jaw of a hairdresser on the, step, the set she was working on. She like socked her Holy and that shit. hairdresser um, filed a charge against her. Yeah. So the conjunction of those two things were led to like a warrant for her arrest. So the police were looking for her and uh, she was at the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood. And apparently like the story is that they were knocking on the door, uh, she wouldn't answer, and then they finally burst through the door or uh, entered the, ha in the room somehow. And she was reportedly found naked in the bathroom <laughs> floor. And then they had to like revive her and get her to dress quickly. And she didn't surrender peacefully. No. She basically, went fucking apeshit on her um, and was dragged out of the hotel. Um, no, I, I just wanted to make a comment about um, the state 
of her looks at this point. Um, not anything that she looked bad or anything, but it was it's sort of striking to see these photos of her after this after she was arrested or taken in by the police when she was found naked and there's these photos of her when her hair is all tousled and right. at the time it's the early forties and you're so used to seeing anyone, not even just movie stars, but any woman has their hair completely done and set in curls. So right. it's really it's really interesting to see this nineteen forties picture with these nineteen forties clothes, but the hair is completely Undone and tousled, right? And not done. And she at really all. looks like Jessica Lange oh in those God. photos. Like, she, and sometimes I'm like, wait, is that Jessica Lange or Frances Farmer? Like, it's really hard right. to tell sometimes. When I was looking up pictures of her, I couldn't. There were times where I just couldn't tell. I mean, right, really, especially in the disheveled those disheveled right. police photos. They really nailed it with that right. casting. Yeah. Um, anyways, this is another fucking amazing line that I am definitely stealing. When she finally arrived at the police station, um, they're booking her, and someone asked her what her profession was, and she responded, cocksucker. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just like, hello, amazing. Like, I mean, every time I hear this kind of stuff, I'm like, she was in, this is like in the 40s, like, I mean, and she's a a big Hollywood star, or pretty big, like, well-known person at the time. It would be a huge fucking story if it was a Hollywood star saying that today. I mean, like, if Reese Witherspoon... (laughs) Whoever, right, right. So, like an Oscar-nominated, yeah, Oscar-winning, awesome. or whatever right. lauded actress. But the fact that you don't—and again, it's like the juxtaposition. It's the strike. It's the strikingness of like you don't picture the '40s. This like prim and proper, right? It's very like John Waters dialogue. Like, oh, totally. <laughs> like you can picture Divine saying that in Female Trouble or something, right? What I'm a cocksucker and a shit <laughs> Like, I mean, it's so fucking hilarious. Oh. So the next morning she has a hearing and it's with the same judge that she dealt with uh, at the last court case or court hearing. So his name is Marshall Hickson and this is like a little snippet of dialogue. I will perform both parts. Fabulous. (laughs) Uh, So the judge says, Miss Farmer, were you fighting at the Hollywood Knickerbocker Tuesday night? Farmer calmly, sarcastically, yes, I was. I was fighting for my country and for myself. (laughs) Laughter, light laughter in the courtroom. So she's being funny, like, and she's kind of, like, showy in that way. Like, she's a little bit of, like, I mean, we both probably have done that. We're, like, we're reveling in our fucking, like, rudeness. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Don Davenport. Totally. And he says, control your mouth, Miss Farmer. Have you driven a car since you were put on probation? No, I haven't. But only because I couldn't get my hands on one. <laughs> and they're just more... The, the transcript says, sounds of press gallery with pencil scratching on pads. Wow. Uh, since you appeared in this court on October 24th, have you had anything to drink? Farmer loudly, I drank everything I could, including Benzedrine. Hickson, <laughs> raising voice, you were advised that if you took one drink of liquor or failed to be a law-abiding citizen, she cuts him off. Listen, yes. I get liquor in my milk, I get liquor in my coffee, and in my orange juice. What do you expect me to do, starve to death? <laughs> I don't even know. She threw, wait, I think at this point, I'm not quite clear, but I think at this moment she threw an inkwell at the judge. And then the judge stands up shouting, a uh, 180-day sentence to be served in the Los Angeles County Jail immediately. And Farmer says, fine. And then this the judge, is literally yeah. drag queen dialogue. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the judge says, and he and the description is that he's beat red, take her to jail. But And then this is kind of where, though, she kind of realizes, oh, wait, like, Just I'm kidding. actually going to jail. <laughs> like, it was funny for a moment, but I pissed him off, and my charm isn't working on this asshole, right? So this is where she's like, oh, shit, like, I didn't have... A lawyer so she's like I haven't had a lawyer what do and what do I 
what I want to know is, do I have any civil rights? Like, she started realizing she didn't get her phone call. She didn't get her lawyer. But she didn't ask for anything. Right. Uh, until it was too late, basically. So she, the cops come to remove her. She says, I want my phone call. And the cops are basically like, nope. So this is kind of like the big scene in the movie. Like, she's literally dragged out, kicking and screaming, knocking police officers down, hitting them, bruising them. As they passed a phone booth, she was trying to grab onto it to call her attorney. Matrons, they're called. I'm assuming those are female officers to deal with female prisoners. Uh, they removed her shoes. So as they carried her to the cell, she couldn't kick them anymore. I think that she was also put in a straitjacket. So it was like fucking dramatic. Right. And um, meanwhile, the press is probably right. They going crazy. Uh, so as they carried her away, she, this is like a famous line that she screams, where she screams at them, "Have you ever had a broken heart?" Mm. And it's just like so fucking sad because <sighs> this basically all kind of started this downhill start from her heartbroken. Uh, it was relationship set in motion. Her, yeah. Right. Right. And it's just sad. So at this point, her family steps in to help her to keep her from going to jail. Uh, her sister-in-law at the time, who was a deputy sheriff in Los Angeles County, got her transferred to a psychiatric ward at Los, Los Angeles General Hospital instead of going to jail. Uh, she was diagnosed there with manic depressive psychosis. She was eventually transferred to Kimball Sanitarium in La Crescenta, California. And that was kind of where some of her treatment started. That sort of, some people theorize that they, that's what kind of started her spiral even more like it's because of the accelerated treatments. her spiral yeah she um was diagnosed there as paranoid schizophrenic which i i kind of already commented that the um, benzedrine and the amphetamines sort of simulated those symptoms but they yeah. didn't really know that yet yeah. um and at the time she was given something called insulin shock therapy as a treatment um it was at this point that her mother and they actually had like a really bad relationship i think the mother might have been kind of controlling and obviously that doesn't work on francis no <laughs> But at some point, she obtained legal guardianship over her daughter, who was 30, by the way, at the time. So can you even imagine the hell of having your mom be in charge of you at 30 years old? Yeah. Uh, and you got to go back to Seattle, too. Right. So she went back to Seattle. That's exactly what happened. And this is before Seattle's even cool. It's yeah. Like decades <laughs> before Pearl Jam. Um, at some point, Frances attacks her mom, and that's when her mom had her committed to um, a place called Western State Hospital. So she was like, you can't even stay... Right. At the house under my legal Yeah, I mean, Francis did physically attack her right. and assault her. Right. But instead of just kicking her out, she got committed her. Right. Um, and that's where Francis first had electroconvulsive uh, convulsive therapy. Um, and then she was let out after three months. At some point she was let out and she um, was traveling with her father, visiting her aunt. And she ran away at some point and was picked up for uh, vagrancy. So she was arrested again, and this was also sort of a big... You know, these stories were all big newspaper stories at the oh, time. Yeah. Like, and then when she went back to Seattle um, at 31, she was recommitted to Western State Hospital by her mom, who was still in charge, who was still her legal She's, guardian yeah. at this time. I'm going to come back to Western State Hospital, but just going to end on this note, um, that she remained there for five years, basically, until 1946, and then there was like maybe one period where she was on parole from the hospital and went back. Um, this is sort of like what happened at Western State Hospital is sort of the big conflict controversy. 
um, that I'm going to get into later. So I'm just going to continue on through her life and then I'm going to go back to that because it's sort of what happens when the movie happens. Right. Where all of this is revealed. But at, at, right at this point, this is where we are and this is all sort of confirmed things that have happened. So after her release from the hospital in 1946, she initially took a job which is sort of like a sad irony at the Olympic Hotel in Seattle in the laundry department, which is where she had the world premiere of her first movie or one of her big movies, Come and Get It, back in 1936. It was definitely like a sad return to the scene of one of her greatest triumphs. She, at some point in the late, uh, or in the 50s, she, tr she tried to launch like a little bit of a comeback. She went on the Ed Sullivan show and she went on um, a show at the time that was called This Is Your Life. And she kind of did that to sort of clarify what had gone down or tell her version of the story. Because at that point, it was just already a tabloid sensation and there were rumors flying. And um, so she wanted to kind of tell her story of what happened and correct the record. Uh, she Some of the quotes from that were uh, interesting. Uh, she basically denies a lot of the things that people were saying about her. She said, I wasn't in a position to defend myself at the time those stories were pub 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 published. And I'm very happy to be here tonight to let people see that I am the kind of person I am and not the legend that arose, which is really sad irony because it just keeps getting worse. Oh, yeah. Um, he also asked, it, asked her about her alcoholism, and she denied being an alcoholic, uh, and she denied doing dope, which is another question that he asked her. Two other quotes from that show, which I thought were kind of interesting and sad. One of them was, if a person is treated like a patient, they are apt to, to act like one. Um, and the other one was, I didn't think then, and I still don't, that I was actually sick. So I feel like it is just a sad realization on her part that she let things kind of get out of control when she felt trapped or or that people were trying to control her. It made her act worse. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just it was like a sad sort of self revelation she had on this show. Um, but ultimately, it didn't it didn't give her her Hollywood career back. Um, it was just too far gone by that point. But she did sort of start working again. Um, she had a show in Indianapolis, like a daytime television show called Francis Farmer Presents. Um, and then she did act again in theater at Purdue University. Um, and one sort of interesting story, because she, she did have like another conflict with the law, um, and it was related to a play at Purdue. She um, played the richest woman in the world in this play. Um, and she had like a crip, she, she was a, this is the description, don't at me. She was a crippled woman with a wooden leg and an ivory hand. The play was called The Visit. Uh, so this is how the, the, the character in the play was described. Um, she's the richest woman in the world, yet weirdly handicapped. <laughs> she has returned triumphantly to the impoverished uh, village of her youth, and she offers to save its citizens from poverty on one terrible condition. They kill the local grocer who broke her heart when they were teenagers. This place sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, so, And then they describe the character as a charming and terrible figure. Imagine the love child of Frankenstein and Greta Garbo. Okay. So Frances was actually arrested one last time while she was doing this play following a car accident in which she um, was drunk and crashed into a ditch. Now, this is like another interesting story she tells that 
rather, and this is her quote, rather than answering as Frances Farmer, I reverted to my role in the play and suddenly I became the richest woman in the world, shouting to high heaven that I would buy this goddamn town. I got out stiff-legged in ivory hand, quoting all the imperious lines I could remember. Unfortunately, this did not sit well with the cop and the patrol car took me to jail. So she tried to be the character to get out of the ticket, but it didn't work. <laughs> did not work. Uh, but what did work is that the story made headlines and the play was like a sellout the next night based on that fact. And this was like a real triumph for her in a way. And this is her quote uh, after she finished the play. There was a long silent pause as I stood there, followed by the most thunderous applause of my career. The audience swept the scandal under the rug with their ovation. It was my finest and final performance. I knew I would never need to act on stage again. I felt satisfied and rewarded, which is great because she literally never had a triumph like that. She never acted again after that, like she said. And ironically, the famous atheist became a devout Catholic. And this story is really sad, but wow. I'm going to tell it anyway. I guess she had a guilt about uh, an illegal abortion she had at, at some point early in her life. In some way, she met a family that had five children, and she became very attached to them. One night in 1958, one of the girls was resting with her and whispered to her, I love you so much because you're good. And that really moved her. No one had ever said anything like that to, that to she her. That good. Yeah, no one had ever said anything like that to her before, and it was just so innocent and pure. She had, like, the come-to-Jesus um, moment. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally the come to Jesus moments and found God. It was like the moment she was waiting to see that God existed in the world, basically. Wow. She also had like a real affection for St. Joan of Arc, obviously. Right, of course. <laughs> what? Like, come on, could you be more on target? She was diagnosed with throat cancer at the age of 56 and died in 1970. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. 
Okay, so I'm gonna get back to the Western State Hospital because after she died, this is sort of where the legend that we kind of all know of her really started to begin. So the biggest point of controversy about what happened at Western State Hospital, um, and this is where the movie and real life really divert. Where uh, the movie is... The movie is different. This is where the move, what the movie is based on kind of starts, but it's wildly different than the reality. Okay. So uh, anyways, um, this is sort of like where this legend of who she was began. And it kind of all started with our favorite guy, Kenneth Anger in Hollywood Babylon. Uh, he kind of started it, he labeled her St. Francis. Um, and he, he was like the first person to publish those photos that we've seen of her in jail and having, right. you know, the, the, you know, those crazy pictures right. when she was being dragged away. And he kind of labeled her St. Francis because she really became the symbol of the Hollywood machine, like taking an right. innocent and chewing them up and spitting them out. The Britney Spears. Yeah, the like Lohan. using them and destroying them, basically. Right. And driving them to madness, right? <laughs> like all the drama. Um, so the first sort of fabrication that came on the scene about what happened at the hospital, before she died, Farmer was uh, writing an autobiography Um she died before it was finished. So her friend at the time, whose name was Jean Ratcliffe, she was kind of writing it with her. She was like, I'll finish it. Yeah. The, the book was called um, Will There Really Be a Morning? And that's morning, like, as in day morning, not morning. Because yeah. every time I heard it, I was like, oh, morning, like morning the, morning the dead. Right. And it talks about her stay at the hospital. No one really knows if Francis really said this or Jean, her, her friend, made things up. Because that after Francis had died, she really had to sell the book still. So she had people speculate that she had to sensationalize things right. in order for the book to sell. And not only for the book to sell, but to be successful and then to sell the movie rights to the book. So it was so like there's speculation. There's speculation that this is why she did this. There's no proof that anything that's said and this is it's presented as if this is Francis's story, but no one really knows that it was. Okay. So in the book, some of the claims include that Francis was forced to eat her own feces and that she was a sex slave for male doctors and orderlies. And I even saw one account that they would bring in um, local soldiers to, to fuck, fuck patients. And obviously being like a movie star, she would be like the prime target right. as far as just being attractive and maybe even like a, you know, notch on the belt, like right. I fucked Francis Farmer, right? She described her stay there as unbearable terror and said that she was raped by orderlies, gnawed on by rats, poisoned by tainted food, chained in padded cells, and strapped into the, um, strapped into straight jackets and then half drowned in ice baths. So, I mean, like, the typical fucking horror show of a state hospital. Of a sanitarium. Right. Now, I know, uh, I mean, uh, like you just said, that is sort of the cinematic right. depiction of the horror show of a old school sanitariums, but I do think that there is validity to that. The conditions right. and what we knew about mental health treatment right. then versus today, even with the drugs that were given were a lot different and not even knowing about the effects of the amphetamines. and Right. So I feel like people who didn't have the awareness of mental health also could have been like, these are hopeless people. We need a place to store them. And yeah, of course, they were well-meaning doctors right. and people who wanted to help. But what's well, a pretty horrific picture she's painting. Yeah. Definitely. I mean... I'm not. I'm not saying one way or the other because there's no proof um, either that way. It did happen or not? Right. So, like on top of that, 
1975, I think. Um, it might have been 78. Sorry, Rachel. <laughs> Where are you with your facts? <laughs> um, a book called Shadowland was written, and it was written by a Seattle film reviewer named William Arnold. And this is where the really dramatic claim about what happened at the hospital was first presented. From this guy. From this guy. And I realized prison rape and <laughs> rape is also very dramatic, but this is sort of the one that's the big fucking scene in the movie, and, and that kind of really created much of her kind of, you know, legend. So at the time, at this hospital, there was a doctor there named Walt, Walter Freeman, and he, along with another guy, is the one that um, sort of introduced the prefrontal lobotomy. So he kind of, it kind of, I think it might have already existed, but he kind of refined the process so that they no longer were drilling through the skull, <laughs> but they instead, this is, this is the improvement, by the way, they would insert an ice pick-like device through the eye socket up into the brain to sever the frontal lobe. Oh, that's much better. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the improvement. So this is the first time this has ever been mentioned was in this book, Shadowland. That now, she even had a lobotomy. That she had a lobotomy, right. So her family completely denies that this happened at the time. And in fact, her sister, Edith, said that the hospital did ask her parents permission to perform a lot lobotomy, but her father um, threatened legal action if they tried to make their her daughter his daughter into a guinea pig. The other sort of thing that makes it sort of likely that it isn't true is that this hospital, Western State Hospital, was really proud of lobotomies. Like, they didn't think it was a bad thing at that point, and they really publicized the fact that they were giving them to people and yeah. treating people with them. So there's probably no fucking way they wouldn't have made a big deal out of curing their most with famous... With their lobotomy. Yeah. Like, it seems really unlikely that they wouldn't have publicized well, that in any way. what are the pictures that... I, I, I mean... I looked up I looked up Frances Farmer lobotomy today uh-huh. under image search and I guess it wasn't her in the picture then but it looked there like is a her. picture that they claim is her about? yeah I know exactly what you're talking about that's not her that's not her no but okay. there is a picture that's on the internet and we'll post it on one of our social media accounts because uh, it is the it doctor look, yeah it's the doctor and all of that is true like he was lobotomies. there he they were doing lobotomies but that picture is very famous but it's. Uh, I think that it's been proven that it isn't her. Do you know if people still get lobotomies today? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, there might be some kind of... I know electroshock therapy is a real thing. And, right, and, and that I, is real. And I know that in back in the... I think, I guess back in the day it was like gnarly and the way they portray it, even in modern films, electroshock right. therapy is that it's really awful and painful, but it's not. Electroshock therapy, at least today... In it's not. It's era. more of a common thing, and not as horrific as it sounds. It's common, yeah. and it's more like electrodes. I mean, I had that on my knee pulses. when I had like a car accident. You get that pulses yeah. to like re, you know, whatever. I've had that on my knee before. It's not too. the horror show like by picture. Down the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not right. that anymore. But I, it might be a controversial procedure. I just don't know. Um, anyways, in addition to all of that, the hospital denies it, and they say they have no record of her ever going any surgical procedure while she was there. And like one funny quote uh, that people sort of say proves it even more is like in his book at some point, uh, Arnold says, after she had the pre- procedure, she would no longer resist authority or provoke controversy. And obviously we know she still sort of had that fucking badass attitude right. after she was out of the hospital. Right. Um, 
And then I'm going to get into a little bit more about uh, how they definitively know it wasn't true. But first, I'm going to take a little bit of a sidetrack. This is another aspect of the movie that was proven not to be true or that people were like, wait, what? <laughs> when it, when it came right. out. And that's the character uh, in the movie that um, is is played by Sam Shepard. Oh. The, the character named Her- Harry York. Yeah. Um, he was like the love He's interest. sort of like the love interest and like sort of with her throughout the whole... Um, Since she was a teen. Deal. Yeah, yeah. He shows up in that early scene mm-hmm. and it's so creepy. Right. Because he's like, oh, you don't walk like a, a little girl either. Right. And she's but like in Sam high Shepherd school. Yeah, it's Sam Shepard. And you know they get together in the end and it's like right. really hot. And the character is not in Shadowlands, uh, which the movie is based on supposedly. Yeah. I'm going to get to that. Basically what happened... And the reason that character ended up being in the movie is because uh, Mel Brooks' company, Brooks Film, actually produced this movie. Um, they signed a contract, I guess, with Arnold to get the rights to Shadowland to make the movie. But at some point, they were like, fuck this. And they, they figured, this is all based on facts. We don't need to fucking pay him anything. Yeah. Because it's a true story. Right. right? So they got another guy um, who was named fucking Stuart Jacobson uh, and he claimed that he was who he's Harry York he's the character he's he he's said the, I was the guy I'm the guy and they say we got this guy Harry Jacobson who we call Harry York in the movie he told us all the same things in Shadowland so we don't need you anymore your book anymore because we have all the same information from this guy so right. basically you know, because it's a true story, they didn't really need to have a source material for it because right. it was public information, right? right? So they had this guy, uh, Stuart Jacobson. He gave them all the same story that they got from Shadowlands, and then they could cut this guy, William Arnold out. Ar- Arnold out, right? Okay. Was he really a really real guy in her life? <laughs> well, Stuart Jacobson was a real guy, but nobody who uh, knew Francis has ever had ever heard of him. That's what I mean. Yeah, was he right. Really. Um, I don't think, think so. <laughs> so this is this is the definitive proof of what finally happened where we knew the lobotomy was basically a lie. Okay. So Arnold sued Brooks Films when they cut him out of the movie deal. Uh, and it was a copyright infringement case. So basically, <laughs> this is like crazy. Arnold had to admit that he made the story up because if they stole a work of fiction... Then he Whoa. had a right to the story. But if they stole a true story that they could have gotten from another source, which right. they got from Stuart Jacobson, then it wasn't. Uh, there was no copyright infringement. Right. So basically, he had to admit that he made all that shit up about the sanitarium, about the sanitarium and the lobotomy and everything. Wow. So it's kind of like this funny fucking thing where you have to admit your your lies to get the money, right? You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you right. don't. Right. And uh, so basically. The judge was so pissed at this guy that he still threw the case out, and and he didn't win the case, even though he basically what, he was like you're irritating. I'm yeah, basically he was like, <laughs> Shut up. here's my law, you're irritating, <laughs> you're out. Um, so but that was the whole basis of this film was this lobotomy, and it yeah. wasn't true. Like, and um, the damage was done though at that point because no one ever bothered to correct that story. Um, in fact. There was like um, the director's DVD commentary on the on the movie Francis. Director Graham Clifford at some point states, "We didn't want to nickel and dime people to death with facts." <laughs> oh come on! I know, and it's just kind of like, 
Um, Here's the thing. There's a lot of movies that we've had throughout history about creepy sanitariums. But you know what? Mental illness is fucking terrifying. As someone who's struggled with mental health problems, it's very common. A lot of people struggle with mental health problems. I've never had schizophrenia, but I've had my share of issues. And it's a very fascinating and very terrifying subject matter in its own right. And I watched Francis, the movie starring Jessica Lange, and they really do focus more on the sanitarium being the star of the film rather than her mental illness. Right. I mean, they yes, they do show... It's sensationalized, it's for sensationalized, sure. It's sensationalized, but I do think I would have been more interested to see personally as a viewer just her own personal struggles right. with the mental illness right. and just in a normal sanitarium. And that's something we might have seen if she didn't die. Right. Like, we have no idea. We have no clue. Uh, I think the... The bad thing about this is it was maybe one of the first books about someone struggling with mental illness yeah. that was released. And the fact that it's sort of fake yeah. is uh, bad. I mean, I think like yeah. there's a lot of books from that period where like Sybil, where it ends up that it was like sensationalized in some right. way. But it's like a lot of people's first impression of someone su- suffering from mental illness right. uh, was going through. Because it distorts a lot of realities right. and it sort of just makes it this... And they're not all that traumatic. Like... It doesn't no. have to be that level well, for I, you to care. <laughs> or like, right. I mean, you could be silently suffering and have a mental illness. Well, and also not only that, the reverse of that is that not everyone who suffers goes to that. You know what I mean? Like, right. So it, it does present like an, an a, inaccurate right. picture of what people are, are going through. And not to say that people don't have outbursts like that, but I feel like that alone, her, her struggle with her own mind is just as compelling, if not right. more compelling. Oh, definitely. I it's, mean, it's sad we never will hear her story, really, of what happened. She does have yeah. a quote that I kind of love that I felt like was fitting during this part, and she does talk about her mental illness, or it's related to her mental illness or what she was going through, where she said, there comes a point when a dream becomes reality and reality becomes a dream. And I feel like that does say like mm. how she was floating back and forth right. between things. Um, and I feel like that's a very relatable feeling at a lot of levels that people kind of go through. Absolutely. Um, so I think the stunning aspect of it is that people just were like, eh, lies, you know, who cares? <laughs> like who the movies, cares? what's more important, like a good movie or the truth? Like, right. Um, so what you might be asking yourself right now is what was Arnold's motivation to lie? Yeah. Like other than just like selling a book that's like a juicy fucking book, like right. obviously that's a clear motivation, but Arnold actually had... I wanted to actually give a shout out to this guy. His name is Jeffrey Kaufman. And he does like a really detailed list of what's inaccurate in Shadowland, the book. Oh. Uh, It's a lot of interesting stuff, but just I couldn't go into everything because it literally goes through every factual error in the book. And there are a fucking lot. It's not just the lobotomy one, but I'm focusing on that one because it's the movie. Yeah. But it's a really interesting read. So you should check it out. Just search his name with Francis Farman. It'll pop right up. And I'll post a link actually. Um, so, so one of the main reasons between, behind Arnold's motivation for writing the book is that he was a Scientologist. Ah, <laughs> um, oh. and at the time Scientology was very invested in, um, discrediting psychiatry. Wow. 
Right. So... Okay, so this shit definitely <laughs> didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean... Because Scientologists famously believe that psychiatry is the work of the fucking devil. Right. They, they, they equate it to Nazism. So they had, like, a very vested interest in making sure that sci- uh, psychiatry uh, was right. discredited. Like, they're going to stick a right. ice pick in your brain. Right, right. Exactly. And Arnold was associated with um, the CCHR, which is the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. It's a um, group within Scientology that's specifically devoted all to kind of... All these groups within Scientology always right. sound normal, and then you find out it's Scientology yeah. related, and right. you're like, ah. um, And to this day, they, they still exist, publishing things. Um, and they still use that book, Shadowland, as a resource. Oh. Right. And things that Arnold says in the book about what happened to Francis... All of her mistreatment, the lobotomy, everything they use as an examples of how, or you know, as examples the of abuse. the horrors of psychiatry. Right. So they use her as their like little poster girl. Right. Of. Uh, and that is right. so fucked up. Yeah. So I mean, they say things like you know she was used as a guinea pig. Um, they say she had all these things that never happened. Um, that she was on psychotropic drugs. Because they don't, Scientologists don't believe in taking psych meds. They don't believe in anything, any psych meds. So they're basically using her horror story, the fake horror story, to kind of convince other people that psychiatry is bad. People who legitimately need to take medication. Right. Right. I mean, it's horrible. Um, So they don't really know why he chose her, but I feel like it's pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious. She had like a good story, she had some modicum of fame. she and, was in there for a long time. Right. So, I mean, it just like it was a combination of things that right. made it like an ideal situation. And also he was from Seattle, so he probably was really familiar yeah. with everything. Um, so that's all of that aspect. And then there's one last other, other sort of incident that kind of um, really put her on the map for like a newer generation. And that, I mean, newer generation, this is already from the 90s. But uh, in the 1990s... Um, Kurt Cobain became obsessed with Francis Farmer. <clears throat> um, he's also from Seattle, and he felt like a deep connection to her story. He wrote a song called Francis Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle. Um, that's on the album In Utero. Um, and his interest in her actually developed after he read Shadowland uh, in high school. And he, like... Um, Believed everything in it. Like, it's like he never knew that all of that shit was fake. Like, that's how underground the idea that the lobotomy was fake was. Like, even he read Shadowland as if it was like, whoa, this like gripping memoir or or story. Well, I just believed it when I saw the movie. Right. And when I looked it up, I took it at face value because that's a pretty big fucking thing to just make up. And, and, And in the movie, there's this part where they're interviewing her. She's on this television show in the late 50s and they're interviewing her. And she is acting sort of lobotomized, almost. Right, right. It's chilling. Yeah. Well, the reason he... He read the book in high school, but he became even more obsessed with her um, after a Vanity Fair article came out that accused Courtney Love of taking heroin while she was pregnant. Right. Uh, And that's sort of like where they really started feeling persecuted by the media. And so he really saw a parallel between what happened to her and what was happening to him and his wife, Courtney Love, at the time. Um, and, like, they were having pe- They were being intervened by social services because of that article. Like, yeah. so they were really... People were coming at them because, you know, you can't take care of when you're, when you're pregnant. No. Um, 
the other aspect of the story, Courtney Love actually wore a, a vintage dress owned by Frances Farmer when she married Kurt Cobain. Um, and then they also, the rumor was that um, their daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, was named after her, but that's actually not true. It was another musician named Frances McKee, but I'm sure it was just an appealing name to them in yeah. more ways than one. Um, and then that's pretty much it. And we all know what happened to Kurt Cobain. I'm not going to get into that. That's a tale for another day. That's a different episode. Um, I'm going to end on this one last quote from her that she gave Modern Screen Magazine, which I do think kind of says it all about her. And that's why I hate that she was sort of manipulated by all these people after she died and yeah. had a more sad sack story than maybe it really was. Right. Because she sort of was strong and badass and always took credit for or responsibility for her actions. So this quote is, I blame nobody for my fall. I think I've won the right to control myself. And I just feel like that just makes me feel like we would have gotten a whole different story if she had survived to finish her memoir that I think would have been more I just think empowering, she, maybe? I just think she was a really profound woman and she was an incredible actress and incredibly beautiful. Like, right. I mean, I was looking at pictures of her just like... Yeah, her sort of like... Floored. Those sort of Hollywood like movie portraits. She's gorgeous. Yeah, really, she's really gorgeous. gorgeous. And... And the, and I and interesting like she's very interesting she's very dynamic and it, and even at the age of sixteen in nineteen thirty one like we said before to sort of denounce the idea of God and religion right. in her small I mean Seattle I don't know, I guess it's not a small town even then but, but it still kind of like kind of feels that way yeah. it's like more it's not rural what we think of now yeah yeah it's not like it is today but to be outspoken and to be very leftist and sort of active in politics and be a star at that right. time and outspoken and and not want to be put through the Hollywood machine. Right. Instead of, you know... It's just something sad about resisting and then still getting broken. I feel like it's a very relatable... Yeah, it's very relatable and or it's... Or scary thing. It sort of, like, would be my fear, like, to keep fighting and resisting and right. still get broken. Like, you want people in that situation to win at right. some point. I mean, it's just any time... And we see it all the time, man or woman gets put through the Hollywood machine oftentimes when they go through very young you know right. we saw it happen to Britney Spears in 2007 which was horrific the way the media even modern in modern ages the way the media responds to right. people having mental illness and trouble we saw with Amanda Bynes a few years ago right and it is really horrific and the way because it's still like an entertaining thing for people. Yeah, and people rather than being like, "Whoa!" Like right, and there's this sort of sick perversion that I feel like us as commoners, not us, you and me, and Desi, but like people sort of take on. They they want to see bad things happen to these rich, successful people, right? Because it right. feels like, oh well, they're not real. They're not real human beings with emotion. This is entertaining. Right. Get my popcorn. Yeah, these people, whatever, they make a ton of money, so. Who cares? Right. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just a very sad story. But It's very cool, sad. Cool, badass person, I think, overall. Yeah. And we always have the cocksucker line, which is amazing. Ugh. She should go down in history just for that. I need to watch some Frances Farmer <laughs> movies this week. I don't think they're that great, but I would love to see I her just, acting. Like, I just love looking at her face, honestly. Right. I would she like just... to see her. I haven't seen any of her movies. So, yeah, I think it is, like, a good. And you should watch Frances. Just go into it knowing yeah. the truth. Because it is a good movie, and Jessica Lang is fucking amazing. Jessica Lang is so good in that movie. I actually like remember when I saw that movie at some point. I also knew it was the same year Sophie's Choice came out, 
And Meryl Streep won the Oscar for right. Sophie's Choice. And I remember always being irritated because I was like, Jessica Lange should have won. That was right. one of my first hot take Hollywood opinions. Right. I mean, I didn't, nominated. I didn't, it wasn't the year it came out, but it was many years later when I was going through every movie that I wanted to see from the past or whatever. Right. And I watched those two together. And they're both good. I mean, Meryl right. Streep is awesome too. But I remember seeing like their, Jessica Lange's performance is just very raw and Meryl is yeah. great, but her performance in Sophie's Choices... It's restrained. It's more restrained, and like there's something kind of cold about it. Right. And when you kind of place it up against the Jessica Lange one, it's just like, whoa. It's like, what compels you more. It's what... It's there's what compels a tragedy. you more, Like yeah. I said, I was really... I mean, yeah, I'm hormonal right now, but I was... Like, I opened the door when Desi got here, and I had just finished watching Francis, and I'm like, ugh, I'm really bummed right now. Right. It's I a very, really... like, raw performance, and that's why it struck me and, from the moment I saw it. Yeah. And, like, and I, I love s- Jessica Lange. She's so amazing, and she's so stunning. I just, I love right. her. Right. So I, yeah, go watch the movie Francis. It's it's a heavy. It's heavy, but it's definitely one that, that you should watch. I think I want to, if you're done, I want to give a shout yeah, out to our I'm Patreon. Done. We got some new Patreons this past week. Uh, I'm just going to give a shout out to some of the more recent ones and I'll give a shout out. I'll just keep rotating them, the ones I haven't done. So I want to give a shout out to Amanda. I want to give a shout out to Ashley, to Bill, to Bob. Um, Oh, these are all the same ones. Chad, Christiane, Dan, David, Douglas, HR Kathy, It's All Been Done Presents, Jeff. Jewel, Joshua, Matthew, Michael, what up Ron Jeremy? <laughs> Are you the real Ron Jeremy? I want to know. Yeah. And 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 um and that's it. Yeah. So Awesome. Thank you guys. Thank you guys so Check much. Check out our Patreon if you like the show and yeah. want to keep supporting us. It really helps us. And then I'll check us out on all of our social media accounts, which I think mostly are Hollywood crime scene. It's all except for Twitter, right? Except for Twitter, which is H Wood Crime Scene. So please, and if you follow us, we tweet stuff from there. And we love your reviews. I read all of all the new reviews that come on iTunes. I check it every day, like an obsessed person, right? Because no, they're really good. We love seeing them. But Desi and I always text each other, like, "Oh my god, look at this review! Look what they wrote! It's so sweet." I sent one to my mom because it. I was like, "Mommy, Aww. look what I'm doing." <laughs> It's better than my cum podcast. <laughs> um, but and even the even just the stars help, so you don't have to even write they do. anything. That's it's why a, we yeah. that's why we ask for them is is because it helps us chart on iTunes and it helps us get more listeners. And we're really amazed at all the listeners that we've gotten already just in the past three weeks. We've been doing the show, right. so we want to continue to grow, and we're going to work on getting some more perks. And the more money we get from Patreon, we want to create some merchandise hopefully in the future yeah. so keep donating if, if you got the money if not the show will always be free we want your listenership more than your money so that's... I feel like I had one more thing to say yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I feel like I had stuff to say this week right me too but, but thank you so much we actually really appreciate it it's really cool and exciting yeah and we love hearing from you yes we love hearing from you guys and check out we you do have a we do have a good perk actually with a five dollar perk right now five dollars per month you get um, bonus episodes. Right. So those are really fun. Um, you can check those out if you uh, give us a $5 a month donation. Mm-hmm. And they tend to be like a little more urban legendy, and racy, raunchy kind of stuff. So if you like our Twitter account, you might like those. It's like, Twitter, it's like our Twitter account in <laughs> But with Hollywood yeah. kind of raunchy very, stories. It's, it's fun. very dirty. We love doing them. Um, okay, cool. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.